for us, the thing to think about that realism, that capitalist realism as the dominant hegemonic common sense, that is the, the predominant unallowing questions, so forth, leads to a set of consequences, which is where the title of the book comes from. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome to everyone tuning in from around the country and around the world. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you, Haymarket Books, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. My name is Janine Jackson. I'm the program director at the Media Watch Group Fair and the producer and host of Fair's radio show, Counterspin. It is my distinct pleasure to be part of what I expect to be a relaxed, informative, and forward-leaning conversation about this useful new book. Consequences of Capitalism, Manufacturing Discontent and Resistance. The book reflects the college course that Noam Chomsky and Marv Waterstone co-taught and co-teach at the University of Arizona. Noam Chomsky is Institute Professor Emeritus in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Laureate Professor of Linguistics and Agnes Nelms Howry Chair in the Program in Environment and Social Justice at the University of Arizona. He's the author of numerous works, including most recently, What Kind of Creatures Are We? Optimism Over Despair and Internationalism of Extinction. Marv Waterstone is Professor Emeritus in the School of Geography and Development at the University of Arizona, where he's been on the faculty for more than 30 years. He's the former director of the University of Arizona Graduate Interdisciplinary Program in Comparative Cultural and Literary Studies. His most most recent books are Wageless Life, a Manifesto for a Future Beyond Capitalism, co-authored with Ian Shaw, and Geographic Thought, a Praxis Perspective, co-edited with George Henderson. Consequences of Capitalism is an incisive, and I would underscore a readable, exploration of our present predicament and ways out of it. It's rooted in a careful understanding of why and how things are the way they are and on the ways that people have pushed their way out of oppressive systems and circumstances in the past. It is, I would say, a dynamic reading of history, history with the future in mind. In this book, you will hear many political historical fantasies, complicated and deflated by fact, and many tossed around concepts rooted given authors, and context and impacts. I am handing my copy over to my 17-year-old daughter who wants to understand how things have come to be how they are, how these systems that so obviously harm so many are maintained 
including by people who see themselves as humanists, and how she might use her anger and compassion strategically. Criticism done well is a constructive act. Understanding the structures and systems, including systems of personal epistemology, the way we think we understand things, how those systems in motion have played out over particular circumstances, understanding that is central to making meaningful and lasting change. Maybe not sufficient, but necessary. When you can clearly see the knot, it still feels like a knot, but you can see the openings. You can see the strings that might be tugged. And I would add, learning actual history is a great way to unlearn hopelessness. So again, I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy you all are here as well. Let's get started. I'm going to direct my questions, as I've said, but certainly, Marv, Noam, if either of you want to follow up on something the other has said, please feel free uh, to do that. I want to start with you, Marv. I pick up the paper and I read that inflation surges, putting more heat on Washington. I read of Kyle Rittenhouse who murdered two people with the rifle he brought to a protest against police brutality, Kenosha trial to peg whether teen is hero or reckless gunman. I read Ethiopia's civil war is a problem U.S. troops can solve. These news reports are presented as just informing me about what's happening in the world you know, but the weight of presumption that they come with is staggering. I need to believe that inflation is a bad thing, that the U.S. justice system isn't racist, and that U.S. military interventions in other sovereign countries is not only justified, but moral and effective. These are not arguments the reporting makes, they're premises. Acceptance of these ideas is the price of admission, if you would, to serious people, public conversation. So it isn't just that I'm reading about upsetting events. It's the airlessness, the sense that those in charge have it all on lock. I can see the wrong, but there's no suggestion of a lever to grab hold of. And after all, I'm just one person. My powerlessness is part of the lesson that I take away. So those corporate media terms of debate, unspoken but governing, have something to do with what you talk about throughout the book as common sense. Would you tell us about, outside even of the specific content of it, the nature of this common sense, the work that it does in shaping our thinking and corralling our political possibilities? Well, thanks, first of all, to Haymarket, and thanks to Janine and to Noam to be part of the conversation. Um, this is actually a really terrific question to start with, because not only is the substance of the answer uh, going to be revealing certain kinds of ways that the world operates, but it also gives us a chance to talk a little bit about why the course and subsequently the book are organized the, the way they are. That is, that the course itself 
and the book that emerged from the course has a particular kind of trajectory to it. And it had a certain set of goals in mind when we began uh, to do this course in 2017, one week before the inauguration of Donald Trump's first and we hope last last term. Um, in any event, the, the, the intent of the course is, as you've described, to unpack some certain things that we take absolutely for granted and leave unexamined as a way to both understand their constructedness, that is the fact that these are not natural states of the world, but are assiduously and arduously produced, reproduced, and reinforced by those people who are advantaged by the way things operate at the moment. But the idea that those things are constructed, that they could be constructed otherwise, is an underlying sort of premise for both the, both the course and for the book. That is, if things are not operating in the way that is in many, many people's interests, the, the way to begin to uh, produce change in those circumstances is to unpack the kinds of things that we typically leave completely unexamined and taken for granted. And this is one way of understanding what common sense is. Common sense is, in fact, the way that we think we understand how the world operates. And it's an essential, it's an essential feature of being a human being, is to be able to take certain kinds of things for granted. If we had to examine every single thing that happened in the world every day, we'd be essentially paralyzed. And so there are ways in which we have internalized certain kinds of rules, certain kinds of behaviors, certain ways of understanding that in particular situations, the way the world operates is the way we expect it to operate. It returns to us the kinds of phenomena that we think we have uh, come to expect. And as I say, if we didn't have that operating knowledge, which Anthony Giddens, someone we quote in the book, uh, talks about as practical consciousness, we would essentially be paralyzed. We'd have to examine every single thing we do and move from there. So clearly that's not the case. But there are many terms when what we think we understand about the world is simply things we have internalized, as I say, taken for granted and don't bring out for any further examination. And this is where things can become very, very troublesome. And those, as I say, who are advantaged by the status quo have a tremendous stake not only in using what we think we understand about the world as a descriptive uh, phenomenon, but as a normative phenomenon. Not only are these the way things are, as you put in your question when you read in this paper or that paper, these are the facts, but there's also a normative component to it, that this is the way things ought to operate. And as we understand, the people who, are, as I say, are advantaged by the way things are, by the status quo, are constantly reinforcing that particular view of the world and disallowing virtually anything else to come into play. And we can talk about this in, in any number of ways. But in, in, in one interesting way, the, a kind of antonym to common sense is nonsense. That is, the things that we think might be wrong with the way the world is presented to us are themselves ruled out by this constant drumbeat of the production of a 
particular common sense. And as I say, people get be, become um, very much committed to understanding the world in a particular way, which is why it's very difficult to move people's opinion, views, perspective on things that really matter to them. And one of the phenomena that I think is of interest in terms of common sense is that it tends to harden over time. That is, we we take in cognitively those things with which we tend to agree, and we and we tend to push aside those things with which we think we have a fundamental disagreement. So we push those things to the side. And one of the results of that is that the firm beliefs that we have about how the world operates tend themselves to be self-reinforcing over time. And this is a phenomenon that I would say has been exacerbated enormously in the last five to 10 years with the advent of very, very particularized niche-based social and other media. That is, we tend to pay very close attention to those sources on whom we think we can rely justifiably in our own minds. And we tend to ignore those sources that produce a contrary kind of view of the world, which takes me back a little bit to the to the origin of your question. That is when you say I pick up the paper. Um, if one had picked up another paper, um, the, the premises and the common sense assumptions would be quite different. Uh, possibly. And so one of the things that I think we see going on at the moment and the way in which this has become extremely troublesome is that as people pay attention to very particular sources of information or misinformation or disinformation, those things don't simply look like opinions to them. They look like and become part of people's identity. So rather than being susceptible to argumentation, to evidence, to contrary views, we tend, in fact, to stick even closer to those things that we think we believe uh, about how the world operates. Um, and we can see many, many examples of this. I think one of the best examples is what's happened in the, in the uh, light of the pandemic, what's happened with uh, certain kinds of protective behaviors, what's happened with um, uh, vaccinations. Um, all of these things have hardened now into very politicized and non-evidence-based camps to, in, in, many, uh, in many instances. So common sense, this idea of how the world works, not only descriptively, but how it ought to work normatively, is our starting point for thinking about how social change might occur. That is, if we begin to take apart and to demonstrate the constructedness of those elements of common sense that are most fundamental to the way life operates, it produces a set of very unpredictable outcomes. Once that knot, as you put it, begins to be unraveled, it's very unclear where it will take us. But as I say, that's a, that's a beginning point for us to think about how social change might occur. We have to dismantle those things that people take for granted, leave completely unexamined and simply move on and show their constructedness and show that they could be constructed otherwise. That I think is, is a really significant element of social change. The arc of the course then follows from that and the arc of the book follows from that. If we ask 
question about predominant common sense. What is the predominant common sense at the moment? And for us, in the book, in the course, we have come to characterize that predominant common sense as something that others, other scholars, other activists have called capitalist realism. And it's encapsulated in an interesting kind of phrase, which I think we'll talk about a great deal more, that it is now easier in some respect to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And that that little phrase, I think, helps signify the degree to which that capitalist mindset, in its, in its, in its particular variants, particularly the neoliberal form, has taken hold of our imaginaries and doesn't allow for counter-imaginaries of any serious kind. And so for us, the thing to think about that realism, that capitalist realism as the dominant hegemonic common sense, that is the the predominant, unallowing questions, so forth, leads to a set of consequences, which is where the title of the book comes from. Some of those are existential threats to humanity or to the planet or both. Some of them are the everyday violences that the neoliberal, financialized, globalized form of present-day state capitalism has taken, the violences of vast inequality, poverty, uh, uh, food insecurity, and so forth, and then leads us to a set of questions about how this can all be resisted. And here, I think, Janine, to return to one of the elements of your question, is where we turn to history in, in some measure, to think about those moments when the common sense, the absolutely rock hard, concrete common sense, was itself subverted in very substantial ways in order to move societies or segments of societies in very new and sometimes, sometimes progressive directions. But in any event, that's that's the, the arc, of course, and the way in which common sense fits in. Thank you very much. Yes, the, the thing with common sense is you buy the premise, you buy the bit. You know, once you accept a certain view of things, all manner of consequences are acceptable because they're unavoidable or because they are terrible but necessary um, to get to some implied future circumstance of, of happiness and, and harmony. Well, Noam, sometimes the obvious nonsense of the common sense becomes so overbearing that it can't be ignored. And one of the ways in which capitalistic common sense seems so nonsensical is the treatment of the land, water, and air that ultimately sustain the system. We think of capitalistic owners as cynical, maybe even heartless, but generally not as stupid. And the idea that nature itself can be treated as an input that non-renewable resources can be economically accounted for as though they were unlimited. To an observer, you know, from space, if you will, that looks like dancing off a cliff. That looks like magical thinking. You know, we just want this to be true, that we can keep doing this. So we'll just say it's true, even as violent weather and sea level rise and deforestation rage. What is the sense of capitalism being reflected 
right now. Not just in the bare fact that fossil fuel companies are continuing to do the thing that's killing the earth underneath them and to profit from it, but in the fact that there seems to be no sufficiently powerful countervailing actor. Our systems are not acting decisively to curtail the harm, even though inaction seems so irrational. Well, take a look at uh, what just happened in Glasgow the last couple of days. There were countervailing forces. The, as you know, the biggest delegation in Glasgow at the COP26 conference was lobbyists, uh, corporate lobbyists outweighed everyone else. And their task was quite simple. It was to ensure that there will be maximization of profit for the wealthy, the powerful, the corporate sector in the short term, uh, even if it means destruction of uh, human life on Earth in the longer term. But there were countervailing forces. They weren't sitting in on the conferences. They were out in the streets. So there were hundreds of thousands of people, mostly young, demonstrated out in the streets and say, we would prefer to have decent lives, in fact, lives altogether, and survival. That's the countervailing force. Now, whether it is actually countervailing or not depends on us. It's there, mostly young people, which is a sharp condemnation of my generation your generation as well. It's younger people who are out there forming the potential countervailing force that could save us. Now, what about those who are inside? Is their position nonsensical or is it rational? Depends on the framework in which you pick. If the framework is, we should have, uh, is the concern for what's called the common good, uh, human beings, other species who are we are mercilessly destruction, destroying, if they have rights and should have a decent future for them, within that framework, it's irrational. But there's another framework in which it is quite rational. How can I enrich myself tomorrow? Within that framework, it's entirely rational. And you can see it very concretely. So just think of concrete situations. Uh, we have a, there's a lot of talk about market systems. It's very misleading. We have highly limited market systems, but this, they're shaped and constrained by power in their interests. Uh, but to some extent, there is a competitive market. So suppose uh, Let's say there are two automobile companies, let's say Ford and General Motors. And suppose you're the CEO of Ford and you decide it might be worthwhile to think about the common good. So I'll put resources into developing automobiles that will help society survive uh, and they'll be operative in 10 years. 
Suppose your competitor says, sorry, I want to make profit tomorrow. So I'm going to put the same resources into something that will sell tomorrow. Well, 10 years from now, Ford will be out of business. Okay, that's what's called a competitive market. Uh, as soon as the market was made somewhat more operative under the neoliberal regime, with starting with Reagan a little before, but mainly Reagan, uh, then yes, competitive forces began to take place. And what you had was monopolization. Big fish eat the little fish. Pretty soon, you have no choices. Your society is basically run by autocrats who are unaccountable to the public. You want you can't stand your internet service. Sorry, you have no choice. The only choice is maybe two companies which are in collusion to ensure that prices go as high as possible. You would like to have drugs at a reasonable price, won't work. There's monopolization, uh, near monopolization, which ensures that there's no competition. Uh, you could go to Canada, which is a little more open in this respect, and get cheaper drugs, but that's you know a lot of barriers against that. So that's uh, what happens. So within the framework of saying, I better make profit tomorrow or I'm out of the game, it makes sense to say, let's destroy the world. Or suppose, uh, say you're the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, biggest American bank, and uh, uh, you would like, there's, if, you, if you look back at the COP26 discussions, which are kind of interesting on the inside, not the outside, there was a lot of talk about how we now have $136 trillion available in the hands of the major financial institutions. And since they are all wonderful people dedicated to the service of the human species, they will use that $130 trillion to ensure that everything works out. There'll be what was called, used to be called soulful corporations. When the corporations come under criticism, they put on an act of how they're soulful corporations working hard, you know, to ensure that everyone will be best off. You could listen to the U.S. Representative John Kerry, who was ecstatic at the fact that now we have the market working for us. The corporate sector is now fully committed to taking care of the whole problem of the financial crisis. Well, now put yourself back in the position of the CEO of uh, 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 J.P. Morgan Chase or Larry Fink and BlackRock and say, suppose I try to do what I'm talking about. Suppose I try to put money into saving the environment instead of making more profit tomorrow. What happens? Tomorrow I'm kicked out by the board of directors and somebody else comes in who's going to be doing exactly this. So the rational thing for me to do is stay on, destroy the world, because I'm a nice guy and I'll do it a little better than the other guy. But there's an institutional structure that says, 
the position is going to be taken by someone who will be after short-term profit and uh, will destroy the world. That's a part of the institutional framework. We accept that framework. It's rational behavior to commit suicide, to commit species suicide. Uh, there's more behind it. There is a neoliberal ideology, not different, but radically different from general capitalist ideology, but it is out on an extreme. It's an extreme form of capitalist ideology. Should say that it was well described at the origins of capitalism by someone we're encouraged to revere but not read. His name is Adam Smith. Uh, Adam Smith understood very well the kind of system that would develop if capitalism was allowed to run free. He discussed what he called the masters of mankind. In his day, that meant the merchants and manufacturers of England. Nowadays, it means multinational corporations, financial institutions, and so on. He said, the masters of mankind pursue what he called their vile maxim, all for ourselves, nothing for anyone else. That's part of the nature of the system that they're working for. And he went on in words that are uh, very instructive for us today. He said, the masters of mankind in England are also the principal architects of government policy. And they will, because of their enormous economic power, and they will ensure that the government state policies uh, preserve their interests. As he put it, make sure that our interests are most peculiarly attended to, however grievous the effect on others, including the people of England. But primarily, he said, those are who are subject to the savage injustice of the Europeans, particularly the British in India. At the time, Britain was de destroying and deindustrializing India. Well, he was very perceptive. That's what happens when you let neoliberal ideology reign, run free. And the ideology is in, right in front of us. Uh, you can read it in what are called novels by people like Ayn Rand, for example. All for yourself, nothing for anyone else. That's heroism. You can read it in policy formation. Take uh, Milton Friedman, the economic guru of the uh, neoliberal movement. When it, uh, he declared right at the beginning that uh, corporations have only one responsibility to enrich themselves. And of course, to enrich the salaries of their management. It's an interesting comment from an economist. He knows very well, knew very well, of course, that uh, the incorporating, forming corporation is a gift given to you by the society, confers many advantages. If you don't want to accept the advantages, you don't have to incorporate. You can be a partnership. 
But if you incorporate, you're accepting a gift from the society. But the gift carries no responsibility. Your sole responsibility is the vile maxim, all for ourselves, nothing for anyone else. Well, that's the reigning ideology was put into practice. When Reagan came into office, you probably recall his inaugural address. There's a crucial line in it. It said, government is the problem, not the solution. Well, what does that mean? Government is not the place to have decisions made. That's a problem. Decisions don't go away. They're made somewhere else. Where? In the private sector. Concentrations of private power will make the decisions. And that makes sense from the point of view of the practitioners of the vile maxim, the masters of mankind, because the government has a severe flaw. It's partially accountable to the public, not very much, but partially at least. In principle, those demonstrators out in the streets of Glasgow have some kind of voice, and that's dangerous. We want to ensure that that doesn't happen. So let's get rid of the institution that partially reflects their voice and put decisions in the hands of the people who know what they're, the soulful corporations, those who are following the vile maxim. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, our counterpart on the other side of the Atlantic, as she put it famously, she said, there is no alternative. You have to pursue the vile maxim, nothing else. She added that there's no society, just individuals. She was either a liar or a fool, and I doubt that she was a fool. She knew perfectly well that there is a rich, complex society for the masters. Uh, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, trade associations, uh, uh, all sorts of institutions set up for them to coordinate their activities and ensure that they can jointly pursue effectively the vile maxim. But there's no society for anyone else. Everyone else is thrown on the market to somehow survive its ravages. Not the rich. They don't face the market. We have what couple of a number of economists, Bob Pollan, Jeffrey Epstein, have called a, uh, a bailout economy. If the rich get into trouble, which they do frequently, the hated government steps in and bails them out. That means the friendly taxpayer bails them out. Uh, this increased radically under Reagan with neoliberalism. Before Reagan, financial institutions had been controlled, regulated, no financial crises, Treasury Department forced the rules, collected taxes, and so on. That disappeared when you moved to Reagan. Huge growth of financial institutions, mostly predatory, harmed the economy, but enormous component of the economy regularly get into serious trouble one financial crisis after another uh, caused by their activities. 
but the friendly taxpayer comes in and bails them out. That's called, that's neoliberal capitalism. Uh, it's, a, it's a form, capitalism is, you look up the dictionary, it gives a definition of neoliberalism in terms of, you know, following market principles and so on. It's all nonsense. You look at the practice of neoliberalism, the definition is very simple. Vicious class war by the masters. Unrestrained class war. That's neoliberalism. Every aspect of it follows from that assumption. And there's a cost to the population. It's actually been efforts to estimate it. So the most respected research institution, the quasi-governmental RAND Corporation, recently tried to do an estimate of what they call politely the transfer of wealth, impolitely robbery of uh, the large majority of the population by the very rich. How much wealth has been transferred during the neoliberal years from the lower 90% of the population, working class, poor, to the hands of the super rich, mostly a fraction of 1%. Their estimate is about $50 trillion of robbery in the past 40 years. It's actually an underestimate, but let's leave it at that. That's pretty, that's pretty rational. Yeah. Go back to why it's rational. Why not? If yeah. you can steal $50 trillion for a fraction of 1% of the population who doubled their share of income, what's irrational? It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, thank you. And despite all of that and in that context, and I want to say the book does a terrific job of countering these sort of narratives and storylines we hear about the way markets work, the way economies work with the reality of how they actually work. But it's surprising in a way, even miraculous, that movements toward the liberation of people do happen within this context and despite these factors. And Marv, I want to come back to you because we do want to talk, and the book does talk about how these movements for liberation, for justice happen, what some of the ingredients are. So we need to talk tonight about some of the fault lines in neoliberalism, in capitalism, that the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown into relief. We've started to um, already address that. One inflection point was political leaders and their pundit uh, megaphones just straight up saying, your livelihood or your life, you know, as though that were a reasonable and necessary demand. What we're now hearing called the great resignation, um, strike Tober, and now maybe it's going to be strike Vember. I love how they're very interested to constrain it to one month. You know, um, this is being portrayed as workers suddenly getting fed up, and you hear fed up a lot. The suggestion there is that this is an emotional response. And therefore, wiser heads need to prevail. There's also an implication that as an emotional anger-based response, it's going to blow over. 
and it should blow over. And what it should not do is fundamentally shift the relationship between labor and capital. Can you talk, Marv, about the place that I think you see as pivotal, the place of labor relations in particular in broader social change? What in the present circumstance, which we know involves not just unions, but also other organized groups of workers, what connects what we're seeing now with the ingredients of social change as you understand them? What are some of the seeds that you see that history suggests can be not just um, striketober, but but something that might actually change things in a more lasting way? Well, let me, let me circle back just briefly to the idea of common sense and how it plays into this, into this question. Um, there's, a, there's a very long and sordid history that has produced one group of people as the owners of the means of production with absolute tyrannical control over the workplace, and another group of people who have no choice but to submit themselves on a daily basis, if they can, to that tyranny. That is, why do we have a group of people who are the bosses and a group of people who are nothing but the workers? Well, it comes back to a very long history of expropriation, of theft. Not only is there a recent upward transfer of wealth, but going back to the very beginnings of capitalism, we have the uh, ab absolute expropriation of people's land, livelihood, tools, uh, talents, so forth, so that at the end of the day, people have nothing, as Marx said, do but sell their skins to somebody who is a willing buyer, and that's a, that's a crucial point. Um, in a money in a money economy where one group owns the means of production, they have the choice to buy labor power or not buy anything at all. A worker has to sell his or her own set of skills to a particular buyer if that buyer is interested. So here we have a situation basically where. The labor relation, where there's absolutely no question that what happens in the workplace under typical circumstances, there's no question that those who own the means of production, the, the managers, the owners, uh, get to decide what is going to be produced, how it's going to be produced, what to do, if anything, with the profits, uh, if there are any. And the workers basically subject themselves to that arrangement again, largely without question under most circumstances. So under the pandemic, one of the things that we saw was an interesting contradiction at the, at the outset of the conversation about the pandemic. Who were called the essentials? It wasn't the people at the top. It was the people on the front lines in, in various kinds of workplaces, whether they were restaurant workers, healthcare workers, home healthcare workers, retail workers, people who brought us all the goods and services on which the society depends for its existence and for its functioning. But that turned very, very quickly away from these are the people who are essential workers who must be celebrated, protected, and cherished in some fashion to the essence of your question, which was 
under what circumstances did that shift to this Sophie's choice between making a living and being in dire circumstances. And we're seeing reverberations of that in the present conversations around unemployment, about the need to return to the workplace and so forth, which now has translated what have what were at the outset of the conversation, essential workers into the return of people who are subservient to the needs of the bosses. They must be seen, they must be surveilled, they must be observed, they must in fact toe the line extraordinarily. There's an interesting kind of saying about this, that under capitalism, the only thing worse than being exploited is not being exploited. And so for the people who are not hired back into the workplace under these circumstances or choose not to be in the workplace under these circumstances, situation is dire. There's no other way under most circumstances, certainly in the developed world and increasingly in the developing world where land grabs of all kinds are going on at a phenomenal rate, there's virtually no way to make a living, uh, even a subsistence living, without selling oneself for for a wage. And so the idea that if that common sense could start to be pulled apart, and I think we have a number of examples of this, so worker-owned cooperatives, other kinds of arrangements for what constitutes work, and to distinguish real work from labor, which is an important component of thinking about how we recharacterize that relationship. Um, the idea that there's a great deal of work to be done, but not all of it is, as David Graeber uh, described, bullshit jobs, where people are simply there to get the wage that they then spend back to other capitalists to get the goods and services that they have been acculturated to desire which is another whole element of this question. What constitutes the good life? What constitutes quality of life? What constitutes those things that capitalists are then enjoined to deliver to us? And I'll I'll say something more about that in one second. But the idea that if those relationships could be opened up for question, again, it's unpredictable what other kinds of things might be subjected to question. But again, The idea that the common sense, that common sense, that the only way people can exist in the world is to sell or rent themselves out for a wage is itself cordoned off from any discussion of alternatives. So the fact that there are now literally thousands of alternative workplaces in the United States is rarely covered in the media. And if it's covered in the media at all, they're covered as aberrational. They're not covered as uh, as absolutely sensible kinds of rearrangements of how people might, in fact, make a living and make it in a much more meaningful way than simply subjecting themselves to the tyrannical whims of, a, of an employer. So. All of those kinds of things, I think, enter into this question about why questioning labor relations is so central uh, to all kinds of other change. It doesn't mean that other elements are unimportant, but that is one of the one of the sort of hallmark 
taken for granted notions of a capitalist system is that the only way to make it in the world is to rent or sell oneself for a wage. Let me just circle back very briefly to this issue of quality of life. Um, when Noam was talking about what it is that the CEO of Ford might decide uh, to produce versus the CEO of General Motors and so forth, that itself has a certain set of presumptions built into it about what it is consumers desire or are made to desire. And those kinds of questions are really never opened up. Again, it's the capitalists themselves in their anarchic fashion who make the decisions about what to produce, how to produce it, when to produce it, under what circumstances, including devastating circumstances for the planet that are in those hands and those hands alone. And again, we take this pretty much for granted. So if we were to able if we were able to open up this whole question of what constitutes quality of life, what what are the real sources of happiness and satisfaction rather than simply exceeding uh, uh, to those things that the capitalist system tells us are the elements of a good life, of quality of life. We might then also alter some of the arrangements under which those things are either produced or not produced. We might, in fact, move to much more sort of democratic decisions about production itself, which, in fact, might alter the way in which we interact both with each other and with the planet itself. But again, an element of hegemonic common sense is to rule out alternative imaginaries as ruthlessly as possible. So the, the example of something that might in fact present a very different way of organizing society is, is as I say, ruthlessly rooted out or trivialized and uh, and made uh, nonsensical. So I think labor relations, to the extent that they could be questioned, the, the taken for granted nature of this relationship between workers and capitalists could in fact open up all kinds of other questions that themselves I think are conducive to thinking uh, about the, the nature of change. Thank you very much. And and no, my next question to you really builds directly off of, of Marv's response there. Um, because one of the uh, formative undercurrents of the U.S. official response to the pandemic was U.S. exceptionalism. Other countries are paying workers to stay home and guaranteeing their jobs. You know, um, other countries are doing things differently and acknowledging uh, health and livelihood at the same time. But we can't do that because America, you know, um, usually those constraints are a little more hidden or more subtle. But here we really saw, you know, don't look behind the curtain. Just come back to work and risk your life for $10 an hour, you know, very overt. But that exceptionalism, like other narratives that we're talking about, has to be studiously maintained. And a key part of that is ignoring and erasing alternatives. So as Marv has just been saying, we have worker collaboratives in this country. We have mutual aid groups. We have, to take it along another vector, Communities replacing police with social workers, criminal structures being replaced with restorative justice, 
virtually all of the things that we're being told can't happen, couldn't happen in the United States are happening somewhere on some scale. And as we as we move towards the conclusion of this conversation and we want to be looking forward, I think one of the things I want to ask and I think one of the things people want to hear is what do we need to do to amplify some of those alternative models to support them or protect them, given that we understand they're going to be antithetical and maybe potential targets? Um of purveyors of the status quo, how do we help amplify those alternative models and, and, and what's holding us back from seeing these different structures as things that we could do, as things that we all could do? Well, first of all, we should recognize that there's some truth to the notion of American exceptionalism. By American, I don't mean the people of the United States. I mean, the policies of the masters who, the masters of mankind, back to Adam Smith's formulation, who control government policies. So take something as simple as, say, maternity leave. If you look at polls, I forgot the exact numbers, but I think Americans favor it by about 90% or something like that. Well, turns out we're the only country, with, except for a couple of Pacific islands, that doesn't have maternity leave. You paid maternity leave. Of course, a woman can take off and starve if she likes. But uh, the, uh, uh, literally, it's true. It's the United States and a half a dozen Pacific islands. Uh, you go to the next biggest country in the Western Hemisphere of Brazil, it's a poor country, four months of guaranteed paid maternity leave, supported ultimately by Social Security, uh, which then uh, can be extended two months further. Uh, much of the world is also paternity, uh, paternal leave. Donahue, you can't even imagine in the United States. The, uh, and this generalizes. There was an interesting comment by one of the editors of the leading world's leading business journal, not a radical journal, London Financial Times, Rana Forhar, sort of quipped half in jest, but it's actually true. She said that if Bernie Sanders was living in Germany, he could be running on the right-wing Christian Democrat program, which actually is literally true. You take a look at his main programs, which are described as too radical for Americans, universal health care, free higher education. It's everywhere, right south of the border, uh, Mexico, rich countries like uh, Germany, the best performers on educational uh, measures, Finland. Brazil, anywhere you look, uh, universal health care. Maybe it's not great, but at least it's there. Uh, you can go to the hospital if you need it without sitting outside for an hour and filling out uh, insurance forms while you're bleeding to death and so on. But uh, it's there. Uh, same with higher free higher education, almost everywhere. In fact, the U.S. used to have it too. 
when we were a much poorer country back in the 1950s, much poorer country. There was something called the GI Bill, which provided free higher education and subsidies to a huge part of the population who had never gone to college. Notice it was racist and sexist. It was for white males, the ones who had been in the army. Segregation ensured that. But it was there. It was very beneficial to the people, very beneficial to the country. Now, somehow, we're much richer, but we can't do what they can do in uh, super rich countries like Mexico, a couple miles south of us. Well, that generalizes. Actually, if you think about it, there is universal medical care in the United States. It's called emergency rooms. If you can drag yourself to an emergency room and get through filling out all the forms and so on, uh, they'll sooner or later take care of you, maybe after a couple of days, uh, and give you good medical care. Of course, you'll get charged for it later, maybe a bit you can't pay. But it's the most savage and costly kind of medical care you can imagine. But we have it, you know? And uh, this goes all the way back. Uh, it goes way back to the origins of American history. The United States has a very highly class-conscious business class. They're consciously fighting bitter class war. Know what they're doing, thinking about it, organized, never stop. And uh, they, it's partly because of the way American history works. There wasn't any any feudal structure. Uh, European capitalism grew out of a feudal background. Feudal background was pretty horrible, but people did have a place and had rights, some kind of rights, maybe rotten rights, but some rights. In a tabula rasa, you know, empty, nothing, you have no rights. Uh, and it was an empty continent once you exterminated the population. and. Uh, that drove them out. Yes, then it was nice and empty. And you had the government providing advantages to the more privileged, like the Homestead Act and so on. There were, there was resistance out of a very violent labor history. Uh, there was extensive resistance, and we can learn a lot from it. When the Industrial Revolution was beginning in the 19th century, mid 19th century, Working people were following exactly the principles that Marv described. They were saying, we don't, we, we don't want to be subject to masters. That's the worst attack on human rights and dignity you can imagine, is having a job where you rent yourself to a master. We don't want that. That was public opinion, incidentally. Such strong public opinion that it was a slogan of the Republican Party under Lincoln that the only that wage labor is different from slavery only in that's temporary. Now, Lincoln and the Republican Party took an individualist interpretation of this. They meant until you, the individual, can become free. But the working people didn't accept that. They took a collectivist view to it. They said, freedom for us means running our own enterprises, running doing things not subject to any external authority. Uh, they, it was a major labor organization, Knights of Labor, which 
broke through all kind of barriers. Very racist country. The first act of the Knights of Labor was to try to organize black Louisiana workers, rural workers. And they tried hard to develop a non-racist, cooperative uh, labor movement based on common ownership, mutual support. At the same time, in rural America, which is the large majority of the population then, was an agricultural country. Uh, farmers in Texas, uh, Oklahoma, Kansas were organizing to try to free themselves from the control of Northeastern bankers and market managers. They wanted to set up what they called a cooperative commonwealth in which farmers would work together cooperatively to decide what to plant, to help each other in the planting and the harvests, make their own banks and so on. Now, these two moved, that was the populist movement. Nothing like what's called populist today it was a radical democratic movement of farmers. The populist movement and the Knights of Labor began to integrate, and that led to an outburst of violence, state and corporate violence, which smashed it. It's uh, and that's been a re we could be a very different country if that had succeeded. Very different. We'd have a different common sense. But it continues right through history. The labor movement was pretty much crushed, revived again in the 1930s in a very significant way with a lot of lessons. That's my childhood. I can remember it. Uh, the, by the early 30s, mid-30s, uh, labor organizing was beginning. CIO was being organized. It began to carry out militant labor actions like sit-down strikes. Sit-down strikes are very frightening to the masters because they're one step away from saying, we don't need you. We can run this place ourselves and do it better than you can. It's a very thin distinction. And right at that point, when the sit-down strikes were starting, the masters changed their tune. The courts stopped blocking New Deal measures. They began to accept them. The business leaders said, we got to accommodate to this somehow, or else we're going to lose everything. You got the New Deal programs, which changed the society enormously. Uh, there's been a major attack on them under neoliberalism, but they still remain and they support our lives. Well, that's one that teaches us something. And the masters understand it. In the late 60s and the early 70s, there was a, a extensive, serious labor organizing, mostly young people, a lot of it out of the organized unions, women, uh, uh, farm workers, young workers in places like Lordstown, striking not just for higher wages, but for dignity and control of the workplace. That, again, elicited a very strong reaction, including violence and the neoliberal shift, which was largely motivated by concern that things are getting out of hand, they're getting out of control. There's what they call excessive democracy. We have to stop this crazy business of women, 
workers, young people, old people trying to press their demands in the political arena took many forms. One of them was a massive business offensive to institute what became the neoliberal regression. Now, we should recall that neoliberalism wasn't invented there. It goes back to mid-1920s mid interwar Austria. That's the origins of the neoliberal movement. And it was worth recognizing that it was strongly anti-union. It celebrated the destruction of unions by the proto-fascist governments, ecstatic about it, was pro-fascist, the leading guru of the neoliberal movement, Ludwig von Mises, still greatly honored, was an enthusiastic supporter of fascism, said fascism has saved Western civilization. It's uh, rescued it from the effort of working people to interfere with the holy market by organizing to protect themselves and defend their rights. So it's a good thing that the black shirts came in and smashed all that up by violence. It'll go down in history as a gift to America, to Western civilization. The next appearance of neoliberalism was in Pinochet's Chile. As soon as the vicious, murderous Pinochet dictatorship came in, was media flocked, uh, the neoliberal economists flocked there, all the major figures. Uh, Friedrich Hayek said he'd never seen so much freedom. It's marvelous. Wasn't able to hear the cries from the torture chambers uh, somewhere else. After that, they, uh, they moved to bigger, to a bigger task, taking over the global economy. That's neoliberalism. Its, uh, its basis is violence to ensure the dominance of the masters. They may have nice, pleasant words about markets and so on, but when you look, that's what it is. Uh, the, as soon as Reagan came in, initiating what was going to be clearly major class war, first step was to break the unions introduce scabs, which were illegal in every country outside of apartheid South Africa, open the door for corporations to do the same, make sure that the labor, that workers have no means to defend themselves against the class war that was being initiated. Thatcher in England did exactly the same thing. And very rational, when you're gonna carry out bitter class war, make sure the victims can't defend themselves, either by organizations or by ideology. We get to what Marv was describing, very different from the working class in the 19th and early 20th century. Now, the highest goal you can imagine is getting a job. That is, being what used to be called a slave, whose rights are being trampled by subordination to a master. Okay, that's a change in common sense, but it can go back. And the alternative systems that are being described are ways in which the common sense is being overthrown and we're moving towards the kind of decent society that workers in the 19th century, farmers in the 19th century were working towards 
cooperative commonwealth based on mutual aid, mutual support, common participation in making decisions about what life is going to be out of the control of the masters of mankind who we get rid of. They have no reason to be there. Well, it's kind of like Glasgow and the young people in the streets and the suits in the offices. It's a battle. And who's going to win depends on what we do. Can I just build a little bit on that? Absolutely. I think it's a beautiful place to to bring us to our conclusion. Before you even say that, Marv, I would only say that this is a perfect illustration of the way the book works to be a discursive, a conversation about history that is not static, but is dynamic and that is talking about this history in ways that we can use it to move forward. So in our concluding moments, Marv, I would absolutely love to hear you build on what Nomis just said. Yeah, I just I just want to look at one other uh, sort of interesting element of what we think of as both American exceptionalism to some degree and, and a certain taken for granted commonsensical understanding of the world. And that is this idea of the American dream. Um, And one formulation of that is a kind of positive formulation, which says that in America, if you work hard, if you play by the rules, you will make it, you will succeed. And I think this is very strongly held uh, held view, unex- largely unexamined by many people, but it, it's certainly what has drawn many, many waves of immigrants to the United States as a kind of land of opportunity, uh, so-called. But the obverse of that formulation is that if in America you don't make it, it is your own fault. There's absolutely no sense going back to some things that Noam described as emerging from Ronald Reagan and emerging from uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher and so forth. There's nothing to bolster you up. There's no society underneath you, and that's okay. So that the American dream, its formulation is both descriptive and normative. That is, this is the way things are, and this is the way things should be. And it brings me to an interesting kind of comment that Joe Manchin made Uh, just a a week or so ago, when he was, in fact, trying very, very uh, arduously to undermine the Build Back Better bill, to undermine the reconciliation part of that. And he made this comment, which is very, very perplexing in a way, and it would, I think, help us to start to unpack this notion of this American dream formulation. He said, and he said this, I think, from the back of his yacht, on the back of his yacht called uh, Almost Heaven, he said, the reason I'm uh, um, opposed to a number of the measures in the Build Back Better bill is that I don't want us to become an entitlement society. And if you think about that just for a moment, it underlines, I think, a lot of the rationale for the tremendous wealth inequality and absolute uh, divergence of segments of the population in the U.S. at the moment, but elsewhere in the world as well. And I think one has to ask the question, why in the world would we not want to have an entitlement society? Why in the world should people struggle 
for the most basic elements of life, while a few people are launching themselves into space. It struck me when Manchin said, I don't want this to become an entitlement society. It reminded me, and Noam used this phrase as well, it reminded me of what a brutal society the U.S. is. It's a punishing society. And it goes very, goes very much back to the origins of the country. But I think it's a moment when we should start to really question that issue of what it is that makes us a society or what might make us a society. Why in the world would we not want people to be entitled to those things that are just fundamental in, in the Build Back Better bill? And even beyond that, why in the world should people struggle every single day just to make ends meet so that their ends are not met. It seems to me that this is a moment when questioning that kind of common sense, the idea that this society has to operate in the brutal fashion that it does. And this translates, I think, very effectively into our foreign policy, into our endless waging of war, and into all of the elements that make us, in many ways, quite exceptional, but not in the best way possible. So when Joe Manchin says, I don't want this to turn into an entitlement society, I simply say, why not? We are going to close very shortly. I did want to just throw out a final question and give an opportunity for both of you to give final thoughts. Um, I, I, I did want to introduce the idea that we recognize that a conversation about capitalism is not just about unions or even just about the paid workforce, right? We know that capitalism, and it's explored in the book, it relies on homeless people as a kind of object lesson. Here's what will happen to you if you don't accept the deal that is offered. It relies on unpaid domestic labor, on prisons and prison labor. Work is a keystone framework that we use, but it's connected to other social phenomena. So I just want to say that conversations that I've been in, we have heard people say, yes, we need to move forward, but we don't want to be deflected from our core economic concerns. We we want to engage um, the workers that have been ignored. And then that is usually followed by a reference to the Rust Belt. Oftentimes, when you scratch a little bit in these conversations, someone says something like, we basically need you to stop talking about being a woman or being an immigrant in the office or the shop floor or even in the union. We're going to get to those concerns later after we get our big win as workers. So my final questions for both of you and either of you can answer, you know, when we say that racism and sexism and other forms of discrimination and exploitation are integrated with capitalistic exploitation, does that mean that it's necessary to subsume or to sideline those concerns in our resistance to it? And I think this integrates with another theme in the book, which is the way that different movements for social justice have been kept separate and kept even at odds with one another. 
And I wonder, finally, what you both see, or either of you who wants to respond, see as an antidote to that separation. Um, history may give us leads on that, but also to the idea that you need to Stop thinking about the part of you that's a woman or that's black or that's an immigrant and just see yourself as a worker. And and that's the way we're going to win. And you're making a problem if you ask for all of those concerns to be integrated. I just know that it's a very live problem for folks who are very actively engaged in trying to change the world. And I would like to hear both of you as we in our concluding 10 minutes um, share your thoughts on that. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, I'll just say a very brief answer, because you said these movements are being kept apart. It's a very crucial statement. Doesn't mean it, and the answer to being kept apart is to join together. That's, uh, I think that's my view. That's basically what we have to know. And I think in many ways, um, the course and the book is pointed at exactly that. I mean, our, our, our sense of this is that the diagnostic, that is to try to think about what, what is the sort of underlying fundamental causes of the various kinds of oppression, exploitation, and so forth, if we can, if we can understand their commonalities, that, that if they have structural, systemic, underlying sort of causal mechanisms, then those can be utilized to produce a kind of political coalition. That is, that people are all fighting, perhaps from very different sort of uh, viewpoints, but fighting for same kinds of ends. Then the very, very deliberate and very, very vigorous attempts to keep those movements apart can be bridged. One of the one of the fears, and I think this is one of the reasons why Noam characterized uh, a lot of the history that's gone on as an unmitigated class warfare being fought largely by the 1%, by the elite class, much more effectively than those underneath. Their great fear is that those divisions which they constantly manufacture, constantly reinforce, constantly emphasize, that those will somehow be bridged and people will in fact operate and act in their common interest against that class. So I think there, there's nothing that says that other dimensions of oppression need to be either minim, minimized or trivialized, but the degree to which people can see commonalities in the production of their predicaments, then I think it provides a basis for political cohesion and political coalition and the ability to resist those efforts to keep people apart. That is to think much more systemically about what is producing these problems and the way in which to solve them is to form political coalition. Because as Noam has described many times and the way we've talked about it in the course and in the book, there are many, many more of us than there are of them, which is also, I think, one of the underlying sort of considerations in all of this conversation about excess democracy, that is to open those gates 
to people actually taking control of the system is anathema to those on top. So we see vigorous, vigorous efforts, whether it's through uh, voter suppression, through gerrymandering, through outright voter vote stealing and so forth, to make sure that that, ex- that democracy doesn't overflow its bounds, its, its actual charted position in the society. But I do think there are many, many ways in which understanding the commonalities of the problems helps lead us to a kind of political solution uh, where uh, coalition is much more likely than division. I can't thank you enough for engaging that question, first of all, um, directly and honestly. And I, I, I just want to thank our guests, Noam Chomsky and Marv Gladstone, for joining us today. Um, the book, let me get it in front of me, my my many folded and penciled in uh, book, Consequences of Capitalism, out now from Haymarket Books, based on lectures by these professors. I want to say again, it's a readable, accessible, and ultimately hopeful book. If you want to see how we got here, why we seem to stay here, and how we can get out of here to a more inclusive democratic and socially just society. Thank you so much, Noam Chomsky and Marv Gladstone, for your time, for your insight, to Haymarket Books for bringing us all together, and to all of you out there for joining us. Um, Really, we, we, we won't win any fights that we don't join. I think is what is what we're learning here today. So thank you all. Thank our guests. Thank our hosts. And thank you, our listeners. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.